Psalm 126, I'll begin reading at verse 1. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our captivity, O Lord, and the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro, weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Amen. John Calvin said in his commentary on Psalm 126 that this was a psalm composed upon the return of Israel from their Babylonian captivity. You may remember, boys and girls, that God gave his people the land in Israel to inhabit and it was to be a holy land so long as the people themselves were holy. As long as the people were obedient and faithful to God, as long as they were exercising evangelical faith, which is always producing the fruit of good works, God would bless them and multiply them in the land. But if the people became covenantally disobedient and began to show a lack of trust in the Lord, a lack of faith in God by their disobedience and by their going after other gods and worshiping uh, things of their own making or the things that the uh, nations made, God would discipline them. And he even promised to the point of disciplining them by excommunicating them out of the land, driving them from the land. They will no longer inhabit the holy land. And this, of course, is eventually what happened, that after the kingdom of Solomon, you have uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, Jeroboam in the north and Rehoboam in the south. And with Jeroboam, the people of God quickly declined. They went down into apostasy and they turned away from the Lord. The south did the same, but it took more time. They had good kings and they had a series of bad kings. And so they were more of a roller coaster, but eventual trajectory brought them as far downward as the northern ten tribes. And eventually God, having brought the ten tribes into captivity through Assyria, later brought the rest of Israel into captivity through Nebuchadnezzar and the, what became known as the Babylonian captivity. But God, being faithful to his covenant, said that he would not chasten his people forever. But that after a period of 70 years, God would bring the church back into the land. And that's where you read, boys and girls, books like Daniel, for example. Daniel was in captivity. You'll remember he went into captivity as a teenager and he lived in captivity till he was in his mid 80s. All 70 years, Daniel lived in exile, but he did so as a faithful man. And one of the things that Daniel Noticed as he studied the word of God, as he did his Bible reading, just as hopefully you're doing your Bible reading. Daniel noticed that in chapters 25 and 29 of the book of Jeremiah, God had promised he would bring the church 
out of the captivity that they were experiencing. That is, before they went into captivity, Jeremiah told the people of God they were going to go into captivity, but that after 70 years, God would bring them out. And Daniel, looking at his watch, said, hey, the 70 years is upon us. And he began to pray and seek the Lord with fasting. And so what this psalm is, is a psalm that's dedicated to the answer of those prayers and the prayers of God's people for deliverance. The people of God, the church of the Old Testament, was brought back wondrously out of the Babylonian captivity. It happened by way of an edict. You'll remember that the Babylonian Empire falls just as Daniel, remember, interpreted the prophecy. Remember the handwriting on the wall, boys and girls? And, and uh, you know, meeny, meeny, tickle, oops, Aaron, that, you know, that your time is short and judgment's coming. And, and what happens? Well, we know that the Medes and Persians, they conquered Babylon. And it was King Cyrus who was king of the Persians, of the Medes and the Persians, decreed that the people could go back, that the Jews could return to the land. And so Jeremiah's prophecies were being fulfilled. Now, Calvin and the commentators note that so sudden and astounding was Cyrus's edict to the people of God. He says, wherein we... We were permitted to return. It seemed as though as one were awakened from a dream. Notice that in verse one. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. I'm sure you boys and girls uh, have had dreams where you you woke suddenly from the dream and maybe there was a little bit of confusion. You were wondering, wait a minute, that dream was so strong, so powerful. I'm having trouble for a second here determining what was reality and what was actually the dream. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. The news was so wonderful that they were being delivered from this captivity and that they could go back to Zion. They they said, wait a minute, it's almost this almost is unreal. It's almost like a dream come true. We were like those who dream. Verse two, then our mouth was filled with laughter And her tongue with joyful shouting. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. I want to divide this psalm into three parts. First of all, the restoration of Zion in verses 1 to 3 that we just read. The restoration of Zion. Secondly, in verse 4, a prayer for further restoration. A prayer for further restoration. And then verse 5 and 6, sowing for further restoration, sowing for further restoration. Verses 1 to 3, restoration of Zion. Verse 4, prayer for further restoration. Verse 5 and 6, sowing for further restoration. So the people are coming back and it seems almost like a fantasy more than reality. Their momentary confusion has overtaken the people of God. They're so filled with Excitement and joy at the prospect of going home. But I want you to notice here in the first line of the first verse, it says, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion. We were like those who dream. It's not just that they're they're the captive ones of Israel. 
or the captive ones of the tribe of Judah or Ephraim or Manasseh, but the captive ones of Zion. All of God's people are seen as the captive ones of Zion. Why Zion? It's not even of the people of Jerusalem. It's of the single monument, a single mountain in Jerusalem. They're the people of one mountain. Why is that? Why does, why does the psalmist refer to the entire church of the Old Testament as a people of one solitary mountain? Because that, of course, is the mountain where God is worshipped. Because the people that are being restored, the emphasis is here, these are the people who worship God that are being restored. These are the people who hear the gospel. These are the people who see the typological sacrifices. These are the people who get to go and hear the law read and preached and the prophets to prophesy. They are returning to the place of worship. That's the chief reason for their joy. They are getting to go not just back to familiar lands and old towns that they once knew. Most of these people have never been to Israel. It's been 70 years. Only the oldest of men and women have any memory of Israel. And yet, people who have never seen the place are thrilled to their bones, exultant with joy because they have longed to be worshiping on Mount Zion. You know, in in their day, Daniel, you remember, boys and girls, how Daniel had to open a window and he had to pray towards Zion. Three times a day, he prayed towards Zion. That, that was as close as he could get. And, and we see how much Zion is on the mind of Daniel, even not just the fact that he kept praying towards Zion, but you'll remember that Daniel uses the language that during the time of the evening sacrifice, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Daniel is still on Zion's time. It's not the evening sacrifice of their time in Persia. It's the evening sacrifice time in Zion. He knows what time it is in Zion. The, the godly among God's people were, were overcome with joy because they were so fixated on Zion. You know, Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4 that it would be on Mount Zion which the Jews would worship. They were correct. The Samaritans did have it wrong. But Jesus said that the day was coming and now is when it won't be in Zion or on the mountain of the Samaritans, which worship will be offered, but it will be offered in spirit and in truth. Why does Jesus do away with the earthly Zion when the psalmist seems to make so much of Zion? Well, the reason is because in Jesus Christ, he has fulfilled all that Zion, all that the temple represented. And through Jesus Christ, we now worship God wherever we are. We don't have to be at a specific geographic location. But here's the point that as the people of God were longing to worship God at Zion, we as Christians must keep and, uh, and if we don't have it, attain a heart that longs for Zion, that longs for the heavenly Jerusalem above that we read about in Revelation 22 that comes down from heaven. Where Christ is, there is our Zion, where the Father is, where the Holy Spirit is before the throne. 
That's where your heart and my heart are to be. We we are, in a sense, in captivity. We are in a Babylonian exile here in this world. And our real home and our real desire is where God is worshipped face to face. We worship God in spirit and truth. But even this is a foretaste. Sunday is only supposed to be a foretaste of the world that is to come for us. The spirit does move and he moves when he's blessing powerfully and mightily among the people of God. And we want the Holy Spirit here. We want him to be poured out on the church and we want to taste and see that the Lord is good. And we want to see conversions and we want people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we want to see Christ magnified and glorified and we want to worship the father and bow down with him. But this is but a taste. Of what will be realized, we are to be like those who dream at the thought that we will be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's a tremendous blessing and privilege to be in the church here today where the ordinances are observed and as best we can see by the light of God's word maintained and kept pure. It is no insignificant privilege, and I want you boys and girls to realize that. That by heaven's standards, you are millionaires. Because you are so inordinately privileged to be in a place where God visits his people with grace and with power and delights and things that give joy to our soul. And, and this is what made the godly in Israel rejoice with such exuberance, such jubilation. They would worship God again in Zion. It's not just returning to some familiar surroundings. But let me say this by way of application. Number one, do not take the privileges of worship, of liberty of conscience for granted. Do not take the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper for granted or the preaching of God's word. You know, there are many believers who would love to hear the word of God, but they're in prison. They have no preacher. They have no Bible. They have no hymnal. They have no Psalter. Many live far away from regular preaching. And yet you think of all the people who have opportunities for worship and don't take advantage of it here. So many churches sitting half empty Sunday morning. And even more so on Sunday night, if the church is open at all. In a book called Southern Presbyterian Leaders, 1683 to 1911, the author of this book, recounts how many new Presbyterian churches in the early South had no regular ministers. They were planting many churches, but the ministers had to split their time between two or three different churches in a given region. You know, if we're serious about church planting, I think that's something we need to think about, too, to get me in my truck and going and preaching multiple services in places. But many Christians are like those Jews who heard Cyrus's edict. And here's the sad story that comes with this psalm. There were many people, many Jews in Babylon who said, you know, I would like to remain in Babylon. I've grown accustomed to this culture. But it's not so with the psalmist, is it? 
The psalmist says he's a man like one who dreamed. It was incredible. It was nearly unbelievable that the, that the Lord would open this door that no man could shut again. And so in verse 1 we read this, When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. The, word, the, the NAS uses the phrase brought back. Your Bible may say turns. The Lord turned. It's, it's one of the most frequently used words in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. It's one of the top 12 words used uh, in the Old Testament. And it's the word that we often associate with repentance. The, to, to turn or to bring back. So the Lord here is turning the people of God. Turning them away from Babylon, turning them away from this world and turning them back to himself, back to Zion, back to the the means of grace. And maybe God has you here this morning because he is trying to turn you back. You've lost your way. You've lost your joy. You've lost your enthusiasm for Christ. You've lost your Bible, so to speak. You've lost your prayer life. You've lost your fellowship. And God is. Seeking maybe this morning, even through this message, to turn you back to Zion, to come out of your captivity. Maybe you're here this morning and you're without Jesus himself. You're without the Savior at all. You, you, are, you have lived your whole life in captivity. You were born in captivity. You were born in your native sins. You, you have known nothing but a world of, of sin and self. And you have seen it in the countenances of others that there is more to be found, but you have not found it yet. How do you find it? How do you you get this exuberance for Zion? You, You seek it in Christ. You look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Well, because Jesus is God's son. Jesus is the son of God. Very God and very God, as we just confessed in the Nicene Creed. He is both God and yet he became a man, a real human being, just like you and me, yet without any sin within himself. And Jesus Christ came into this world to suffer and to sorrow for your redemption so that you could be saved. He would live a life that you have not lived. He lived a perfect life where you lived a life of sin. He lived a life of obedience to God where you have lived a life in disobedience to God's commandments. He has lived a life of righteousness where you have lived a life of unrighteousness in everything you've touched. And he, having lived that perfect life for God, now can substitute himself for you. He can give you the righteousness he inherently has. You can have that righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. You can have what you need. You need two things. You need forgiveness and you need righteousness if you're going to be in heaven. If you're going to be in Zion, you need Christ because Christ gives the sacrifice on the cross for your sins. And so your sins are taken care of. The negative is washed away, but you can't just have the negative washed away and be left naked. You need something positive in its place. And that is the righteousness of Jesus. The lawfulness of Jesus, the obedience of Jesus. And that is received by faith as well. Just as you believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you believe in Jesus for the righteousness you need to stand before God. And if you should appear before God and God says, why should I let you into Zion? 
And you would say, Lord, it is not because of anything inherently within me. I am a sinner. And you know my sins better than I do. But it is only because of your grace through Jesus Christ, who has died for those sins that I have committed in word, thought and deed. And for that righteousness that you have freely given me that I wear, I wear his righteousness. This wedding garment is not my own. I did not make it. I did not earn it. I did not buy it. It was given to me. It's given to me by Jesus himself. Jesus said, wear my clothing, wear my garment, wear my righteousness. Clothe your nakedness with this. Don't try and do it with your works. Don't try and do it with your tithing and your praying and your fasting and your Sunday school teaching. Don't try and do it because you're an Orthodox Presbyterian church or you've got some kind of Presbyterian pedigree. You, you, you put all that away. And you look only to Jesus. Only to Christ. And take his works for yours. And God will welcome you into Zion on those terms. But those are the terms. You must surrender your life completely to Jesus. You must give up yourself. You must give up your life. You must die with Christ and be raised with Christ. Christ must be everything to you or no, he is nothing to you. Jesus must be your Alpha and your Omega. You must have him as your Lord, as your Savior, as your King, as your teacher, as your prophet, as your priest. He must be everything. Or there's no Zion. He is Zion itself. He is the King for whom the gates open. The gates open for Jesus Christ and for those that are in union with Jesus Christ. John Calvin Commenting on this psalm says that the restoration of the people of God serve as proof of their renewed adoption by the Lord. The, the exile served as a national excommunication because of their unfaithfulness. Even though we do see individuals who are faithful like Daniel, but nevertheless, as a nation, they were exiled and they were they were removed from the. The presence and the ordinances of God. But the exile served the purpose of sending the people of God, in a sense, back to Egypt, handing them over to the devil, that their soul might be saved, that they might recognize their foolishness, they might slap their thigh because of their folly, that they might be reminded for 70 years of how far they have fallen from the great work of redemption. And they would be brought to their senses and brought to repentance. Indeed, they would be brought back. They would be turned. Now, the people of God, notice in verse 2 and 3, they respond to this turning, to this wondrous work of God here with praise and singing. Look at verse 2 and our text. Then our mouth was filled with laughter. Our tongue with joyful shouting. And then notice that observers, third party people are watching and they said, then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. People are watching. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Again, John Calvin he would have, John Calvin says this, quote, he would have the people so to rejoice 
on account of their return as not to bury in forgetfulness the grace of God. He therefore describes no ordinary rejoicing, but such rejoicing as so fills their minds as to constrain them to break forth in extravagance of gesture and voice. The restoration of God was a work of God, and and the works were so wondrous as to bring about tremendous praise and honor and glory to God. Let me say, by way of application, there is no greater work of God than the redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ for us. Where Jesus Christ brings out his elect from the slavery that is ours inherently, not merely out of Egypt or Babylon, but out of sin and Satan and death itself. And the poor sinner who is converted truly to Jesus Christ brings great joy, not just to himself, but even we are told the angels of heaven rejoice. Their mouths are filled with laughter. When even one sinner is brought to Jesus Christ. And even such a work of grace causes unbelievers to comment on the things that the Lord has done. Who cannot marvel at the grace of God that turns a self-centered man into a self-denying saint? Do not unbelievers say God has done great things for them even and when they notice that a man puts away his immorality and begins to attend seriously upon the things of God and gives himself to prayer and the word. Or when a college student abandons his drunkenness and becomes a seriously minded Christian, doesn't his fraternity notice these things? Or when formerly a quarrelsome and selfish wife begins to put on a gentle and quiet spirit and patiently submits to the thoughtlessness of her husband. Paul says that such a change may even bring that man to Christ without a single word of witnessing to him. Why? Because the man says to himself, The Lord has done great things for her. The Lord has done great things for my wife. She's a better woman now than the one I married. She's a new creation. And I shall see about Jesus Christ for myself. When a formal outward professor of religion, somebody who's just going through the motions, I don't mean somebody who teaches professionally religion, I mean somebody who's going through the motions, somebody who professes to have Christ, but doesn't really possess Christ, but then begins to have real inward workings of grace sitting in that pew that they've sat in for so many years. And then they finally find their hearts strangely warmed by the reading and the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now Jesus appears to him as lovely. And he says to himself, what? I I know I've been a churchgoer my whole life. But now I feel there's an earnestness about my faith. Now I feel that my, my confession in the Apostles' Creed is not just some empty parroting of things I've memorized. Now that which I'm saying is sincere. Or when an employee sees a boss who all these past years has never come to the employee to apologize or never asked for forgiveness for losing his temper or being rude or overly curt towards his employees. And now suddenly his boss is a new man. He's gotten religion, they say. When formerly a moody and disrespectful teenager comes to his mom and dad says, Mom, Dad, will you forgive me for the way I've rebelled and 
complained and dishonored you. I deserve, as God's word says in the fifth commandment, to live a short life. Can you forgive me? You know, when you see those kinds of things, those kinds of stories, you know the Lord has done great things. And we are glad. And isn't that the sad case of our day? It almost seems like we're in captivity. And we're not hearing many stories like this. And we're not seeing many conversions like this. You know, Sinclair Ferguson has said, and I've said it to you before, the problem with the evangelical church is not that we're discouraged, it's that we're not discouraged enough about our condition. We've grown used to captivity. It seems like it's the norm. It seems like it's, it's, it's regular business. And, and when there are no extraordinary works of God, that, that seems par for the course. But I wanted to notice here, what, what does the psalmist do in the light of the things that God has done for them? Look at what he, he secondly, he says what? In verse 4, restore our captivity, O Lord. Wait a minute. I thought you just were restored. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were rejoicing that Cyrus has told you go home and build the temple and pray for me. Here it is. I think that any true Christian, when they come to faith in Jesus Christ, they do rejoice in the things that God has done, but it makes them greedy for more. They, they realize that they are on their way to Zion, but like Pilgrim, John, the Pilgrim uh, in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is leaving many behind, isn't he? And so he says, restore our captivity, O Lord. Restore corporately us, O Lord, as the streams of the south. Isn't that what we should be praying? Look what's happened to us in the last 150 years in the church. How many churches have gone into Babylonian captivity, even though their doors are still open? There's no gospel being preached. There's no Christ really being offered. It's just moralism. Just do-goodism. Let me teach you how to be a better person. This psalm contains a prayer here for his brethren who still remain in captivity. You know, historically, we know that when Cyrus opened the door for the Jews, not all the Jews went home. In fact, even indeed, at first, it's only a remnant. When you when you look at the register of in Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, and you see, OK, here are all the people that came back and registered. I mean, it's pretty small compared to who went all into captivity. And I think there needs to be a sense of sadness. Those of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, there needs to be, with that exuberant joy, a desire to see many return with us. John Calvin, again, I know I'm quoting Calvin a lot this morning, but, you know, there's not much better commentary on Bible than John Calvin. Some were held back by fear, others by sloth, not wanting to endure the hardships of the journey and the reconstruction of Jerusalem and all Israel. And Calvin also notes that some preferred ease of the homes and the gardens that Jeremiah earlier had commanded them to build in the 70 years of their Babylonian captivity. 
and thereby demonstrating their love for the present world more than eternal life. Here's the meaning of this. That is that while there are or is such joy among the remnant, there is also a godly longing to see others brought to Zion. And so they pray. Notice here it says, restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. What does that mean? Well, here it's a reference to those southern creek and riverbeds in southern Israel, the southern portion of the nation that would depend upon the refreshment of God's gracious provision of rain. And so the psalmist here is saying just as he would pray for dry, barren creek beds to be running with water again, that God would pour out his spirit on the captive people. The psalmist is doing what? He's praying for revival. He's longing to see a season of refreshing for the people of God. Yes, he rejoices with unspeakable joy. Yes. But at the same time, the psalmist realizes the church is really in a bad state. And the majority are still in captivity. And in his joy, he prays for the church. Let me say by, again, way of application. You seeing the great and wondrous things Jesus Christ has done for you. Can you go home and do any less than the psalmist? Will you go home and not pray for God to revive his church again? Will you go home and not so much as... Get on bended knee and ask the Lord, Lord, revive us again. Send forth your spirit like streams of water, living water. Oh, Lord, pour out your grace upon us. Do we not recognize how far and how fallen we are in our own land? We have entire denominations that have abandoned a belief in the inerrancy of God's word or the sufficiency of Jesus Christ or the deity of Christ. Or the miracles of Christ. Or the resurrection of Christ. Or the necessity of regeneration and the new birth. We have churches that now call evil good and good evil. Things that are unholy and an abomination to God are now pronounced even with blessings and benedictions by some denominations. Is there anyone here this morning who needs to be convinced that many Presbyterian and Bible-believing churches need reviving. How many Bible-believing churches will be closed tonight? They are not hungering and thirsting for another feeding on God's Word, another opportunity to pray. Recognize that Jesus Christ is the answer and the fulfillment to the psalmist's prayer. Restore our captivity, O Lord. How was that prayer of the psalmist answered, boys and girls? It was answered chiefly in Jesus Christ. That just as God replenished the streams in the south, in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ, excuse me, in the fullness of time, God the Father sent forth the Son into the world, sent them to his people. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel is what we sing. 
that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell. Thy people save and give them victory or the grave. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And of course, Jesus did come to his people. It's a reminder in verse 4 also that we who have been set free from captivity in Jesus Christ and who additionally have enjoyed the blessings and the advantages of his church and who have been set free from unbelief and modernism and moralistic and liberal preaching and devoid of the spirit, devoid of saving grace, we need to keep praying. Pray for the church. We need to pray for many who have been left through sloth, through ridicule, through a fear of the loss of church property or unbelief. Many have chosen to remain behind. And our theme for the thank offering is to rescue the perishing. And we rescue the perishing first by prayer. But then my third and final point, we do so also by sowing. We rescue the perishing by sowing for a further restoration of the church. Look at verse 5 and verse 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now these final two verses of the psalm seem to be stating what was maybe known as a common or a general proverb to the people. But here it has a wider application than the particular circumstance. That is, the people of God knew many tears and sorrows in captivity. They, they knew the loss of their homes. They knew the loss of the temple. They had family members that were killed. They were separated from others. Most importantly, they lost the fellowship with God at the temple. And they had to be content with what Daniel had at a distance. And for many years, the faithful few, like Daniel, wrestled with God with prayer and fasting. And Daniel, reading his Bible, reading the promises of God in the book of Jeremiah, what did he do? They sowed faithfully in captivity for many years. They had no harvest time. They had the seed of God's word and his promises, and that was it. They, and, and yet men like Daniel and like the psalmist, they sow the word with prayer. And what happened? The Lord was pleased to answer his people and remain faithful to his covenant. Now, this is the application. The psalmist here is saying this. He's making an application to his original audience, the people of God, reading and singing this psalm. And he is saying to them, you need to persevere in faithfulness. You who have been restored, you have been brought back to Zion. You are to persevere in faithfulness with the future promise of God's rich provision. Those who providentially suffer while laboring for the kingdom of heaven will in due season reap a joyful harvest. But we need to realize there may be still yet a season of weeping and carrying our bag of seed with us as we sorrow. It's true for the church today. What, 
What are we to do when so many seem to be turning aside from the living God? What are we to do? You are to be faithful. Even if everybody else, boys and girls, even if all your friends, all your schoolmates turn aside to the right or to the left and they go into captivity, you're supposed to be steadfast. You're not supposed to be simply just looking at what others are doing. You're looking at the faithfulness of God and you sow with tears if necessary. But you keep sowing the word of God and the church is to sow the word. Jesus did that in his own ministry. He wept over Jerusalem. He foresaw its destruction. And you and I are going to have our own heartaches over the church as we sow the word of God. And it may be that not only will we have this in a corporate sense, but individually, God may call you to your own type of sorrow. You think of the paraplegic Christian who cannot dress or bathe or feed themselves or the Alzheimer's patient who once played the church organ for many years or the deaf who depend upon a signer to hear the word of God or the boy who bounces from foster home to foster home or men who spend their most productive years awaking in prison every morning or the infertile woman who watches others ride the merry-go-round of childbearing and family life unable to climb aboard herself. Those believers who suffer in their body and in the providence of God who continue, though, to sow the word of God, will rejoice in the resurrection. We need to realize that the rejoicing ultimately is consummated in our resurrection. Christ in Jesus, the orphan will find a heavenly father because he is a father to the fatherless. And the widow will find a promised husband. And those who find themselves without children and grandchildren will find yet, as Isaiah says, a great inheritance greater than children. Let not the eunuch say, I am a dry tree. The sufferings of God's people are not lost on Christ. He watches his beloved more than a young man watches his bride. And he will see to it that our sowing and our work in his name is not in vain. Recognize the final rejoicing and harvest was never to be intended for this life. This life is a fallen world. It's a veil of tears. At best. The Lord has greater things for us. Yet we have to. Have the presence of a heavenly mind to seek the things that are above in Jesus Christ, where Christ is. We need to leave behind Babylon. We need to leave behind all the things that so easily entangle us. And see that there is a harvest in its fullness if we will but be faithful. Let me say finally, in closing, as a church, as a Presbyterian, as a denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we our job is to sow the gospel in home missions, foreign missions, and Christian education. And let me make this final application with regard to the thank offering these next two Sundays. Your giving to the thank offering is a form of sowing while you weep. Your giving uh, of your resources is so that the word of God can go uh, around the world, locally, regionally, and also even into your own lives through the Christian Ed Department. When you give, you sow in China, the Czech Republic, 
Indonesia, Ethiopia, Haiti, Japan, Quebec, Uganda, Uruguay, Malaysia, and other places. When you give to the offering, you are sowing even to places where we haven't yet sent missionaries. You're giving even here regionally. You're giving to Neon, Kentucky, a church in an area of Appalachia that's so poor that it cannot sustain a a minister itself. And so the denomination is taking that church on as a permanent mission work. And so your giving goes to sustain that. It goes to sustain Key West, Florida. Uh, The mission work of Bill Welzine preaching three nights a week down at Mallory Square in Key West, Florida. Your your giving supports new works in our presbytery, Virginia Beach, Yorktown, Virginia, Winston-Salem, and and other places. Bluffton, South Carolina, we just started a work. Um, Your giving is going to all of these things and more. So I want to encourage you to prayerfully consider what you would sow for the Lord in this coming thank offering. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our.